Hi, I'm Patrick McKay, and we're listening to Gospel Tangents. It's the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have an apostle on the show. Patrick McKay is an apostle for the Joint Conference of Restoration Branches, and he's written a brand new book called Healing the Breach, where he talks to uh, people of various branches of the restoration movement. LDS, Strangite, Bickertonite, a lot of people. So it's a really interesting book. Um, I, I, as I mentioned in the upcoming interview, it should be called the Book of Miracles because it talks a lot about miracles. So, anyway, we're going to talk about healing the breach, the Book of Mormon, the split with the RLDS Church, and a lot of other interesting things. So, you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. Welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have an apostle from the Joint Conference of Restoration Branches, is that right? That's correct. All right, so tell us your name, and we want to learn a little bit more about the JCRB. Okay, my name is Patrick McKay, and I am an apostle in the Joint Conference of Restoration Branches. You know, there's apostles in all the restoration groups, and people worry there's 12, 24, 48. I'm not concerned. It's more about function than it is form. Okay. And. Uh, Every branch of the Restoration has some divine inspiration or at least belief in a divine inspiration that they're where God planted them. And we come out of the reorganization, we're trying to remain faithful to what we originally embraced as a church and we do a lot of missionary work and we have 70s and 70s according to Latter-day Revelation are to labor under the direction of the Apostles. So that's why we have them. Okay, so do you have 12 Apostles? Uh, we have Eight. Eight, okay. And so I've always wondered, it sounds like the JCRB, did they start in about 1984 after the revelation uh, on women in the priesthood in the, in the, well now Community of Christ, used to be our RLS church. No, in 1984 there was one independent branch that was formed, it was called the Independence Branch, and I happened to be one of the charter members. And we had studied for a couple of years, we had had our licenses removed in the church, what they call a silencing. Oh. Because we had met in some alternative settings on non-scripted Sundays or whatever. And as a result of that, the church silenced people who met in these alternative settings. So for a couple of years, we had nowhere to go to church. And so we simply met and studied and looked at the early history of the reorganization and felt that we could form branches, that the work could continue through that avenue. If there was an elder, then a branch could be raised up, and we did that. And so a lot of years went by before we, we believed that we could create a conference, and that happened in 2005. There was an initial effort to gather people to talk about a conference. We met in the historic Stone Church. And then later that year, we held our first conference, and we invited as many people in the Restoration Branch Movement as we could possibly contact. We had 76 branches attend the first conference. Wow. That was national and international. So it was, it was a branch conference. The way we designed it was a branch would have one delegate vote, and every 25 members would get another delegate vote. That way, people that didn't live in the Independence area could have representation at the conference. And so 2005 and 2008, we had a group of Restoration 70 that had petitioned the conference for three years asking could they uh, regenerate the Quorum of 70. It's an interesting office, it's self-perpetuating, but they need conference approval. 
And so in 2008, the conference had what they felt was some inspiration to accept that, and they, they authorized that, and 10 men were chosen to be 70, in addition to the four they had. And so as a result of that, the conference began to take on a little bit of size and so forth, and uh, continued to expand, and we're busy in about 23 countries. Oh, wow. and, uh, and so we have a bunch of 70 that are laboring for several years, and in 2016, there was a, a revelation that was presented. It was never written or never codified as far as being placed in the Doctrine and Covenants. It was kind of like in our church, a presiding elder has a revelation about a call to the ministry and the congregation votes on it, but it's, it's not a revelation that's considered a document that's worthy of being placed in a book, volume of scripture. And so uh, the conference accepted that testimony. A couple of names were presented. They were voted on and they were uh, ordained. And those two apostles then over a period of time began selecting others. And so that's where we are today. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, um, one of the things that I love, you've, you've got a great book. Uh, why, why don't you go ahead and show us up, uh, Healing the Breach. Tell us why you wrote that book. Well, you know, that's interesting. Um, I grew up in the RLDS church, the reorganized church, and like most branches of the Restoration, we believe we're it. <laughs> every, every branch of the Restoration you talk to, they believe they're the one true church that is a continuation of what began in 1830. And you know, as I was reading section one one day, it's in your Doctrine and Covenants section one and in ours, he refers to this as the only true and living church on the face of the earth, speaking to church collectively and not individually. And I paused and I thought, what does that mean collectively? We knew in Joseph's day there was only one organization, but following his death it fractured into many groups and has continued to fracture throughout the course of time. And I began to think a lot about that and recognize there were people that were really inspired in the Restoration, had given their lives to it, had devoted their lives, brought their children up in the Gospel, and and had made a real impact whether they were Mormon or RLDS or Hedrickite or Church of Christ Bickertonite or the Elijah Message and so forth. So we began visiting some of these groups of people and we thought we'd get to know them, worship with them, stay in their homes, invite them into our home, uh, had opportunity to speak in their churches and we discovered something we had never known before. Here was a group of people that were very much like us but had taken a different path. I like to think of the story of the woman at the well. Jesus goes and meets the Samaritan woman, and the Jews don't have any dealings with the Samaritans, and the Samaritans certainly don't talk to the Jews, but Jesus talked to both. And we thought, is it possible that Jesus is speaking to our branch of the Restoration, and he may be speaking to another branch, but we're not speaking to each other, so we're not aware of it. So that's kind of what set us on this course. And as we spent time with these different people, we had just an overwhelming awareness that these were the Lord's people, just as committed and dedicated as any other group of the Restoration. So that was how I got started in that process, Rick. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, one of the things that I loved about the book was you really tried to, to get a lot of... In fact, I think it should be called the Book of Miracles because every, every time somebody bore a testimony, it was about a miracle that happened, which I thought was, was great. But um, I loved how you tried to get different voices of the Restoration throughout. Um, 
and, and I guess one of the things that, that I've been struck by um, is the strangites. I believe you had some strangites in there, is that right? Is that right? Well, the reason I asked that, one of their beliefs, um, they don't have any apostles anymore or prophet, and they believe, I'm trying to remember how they say it, um, the lesser cannot ordain the greater, and that you basically need an angelic ordination in order to become an apostle or a prophet, as the case may be. Um, and since James Strang didn't, uh, didn't ordain any new apostles, once the apostles died out, then there, there were no more. Um, and so it's interesting, as you've gone to all these, there's those different beliefs. If a Strangite came to you and say, well, how could you be an apostle? Did you have an angel ordain you? How, how would you respond to that? Well, I wouldn't be able to say that. But what I would say is there was a time when the reorganized church and the Mormon church debated this vociferously. And the, the criticism to the reorganization, the, um, the stream can't rise higher than its source. And so the Utah church says, we have the apostles, we have the keys, and so you couldn't ordain Joseph and so forth in the reorganization. Right, yeah. But our position was is that, that uh, the source of the stream is God, and if God commands, there's anything you can't do. And so we believe Joseph III taught that God could regenerate the church from a single elder if he was commanded to do so. And so within the Melchizedek priesthood is that power to regenerate, to reorganize, to recombine the church, whatever term we might want to use. And that was the position of the reorganization. It's interesting you brought Strang into this because the two principal elders in the early days of the reorganization were both ordained in Strang's movement. Right. In fact, Jason Briggs, who was chosen to preside over the formation of the reorganization in 1853, on the strength of his office of a high priest. On April 6, 1846, he was ordained a high priest under the hands of James J. Strang. And he became the first apostle chosen, and then he in turn ordained the next six. For Strang? No, for the reorganization. For the reorganization, okay. And so that became kind of an interesting thing, and, and he was never reordained, or he never had to set that down. And Strang was, had been ordained by uh, Hiram Smith had been ordained uh, a high priest. He wasn't ordained, Strang claims he was ordained by an angel at right. the hour that Joseph was, was killed. But going back to just his priesthood and William Marks and um, let's see, um, trying to think, uh, Zenas Gurley as well as uh, Jason Briggs had all been in that movement in one way or another. And so uh, it's just kind of interesting. We're of the persuasion, and not everyone shares this, that when Joseph died and the church fractured, there were men in the ministry in all of these groups. And the question begged the question, did they all lose their authority as soon as Joseph died if they didn't go one way or another? And we've been persuaded over time and witnessing and experiencing what we've seen, miracles that have been demonstrated in their testimony, that God is in the matter. He's been involved in all of these branches of the Restoration. And this book isn't designed to say that one group is better than the other. You know, I'm in the reorganization. That's where God planted me. I, I have a testimony that the teachings that we have, I'm, I believe, are scripturally based. But that doesn't mean if I have authority that you wouldn't have authority, Rick. We, we assume because I have authority, you can't. But it's very hard to prove a negative. 
you know, we can all say we have authority, but you must not. And I simply believe that there's a, a new day dawning for the restoration where there are people that God has planted in all of these groups and it's his intention to weave us back together. Yeah, I, I liked, uh, it seems like when we were back in Independence about a month ago, um, one of the things that I remember you saying to me at that restaurant was, we need to quit worrying about all these authority claims. Is, is that right? Did I, am I characterizing you right? Yeah, well, what I said was in Protestant Christianity, they resisted the teachings of the papacy. In, in, the, in the Catholic faith, they believe the Pope is the vice chairman of God, that he speaks you know, ex cathedra. They believe in intercessory priesthood. Protestantism protested that. They reject that, and they replaced that with the Bible. The Bible became inerrant. And so in Protestant Christianity, if you believe in Jesus and you accept the Bible's word of God, there's room for you in the tent, whether you're a Methodist, a Pentecostal, a Presbyterian, whatever. Well, in the Restoration, I'd like to think if we all believe in Christ and we believe in the, the Book of Mormon, that there's room under the tent. The problem is the elephant in the room is authority. Right. That's what you said. And so in Protestant Christianity, the authority is the Bible. So you can be unhappy in the Pentecostal church and you can go over here to the Assembly of God or go over here. And, but in Latter-day Saintism, only one church claims to have authority. The, there's a little group in Every church claims they're the only one with right. authority, right? In fact, there's a little group right behind the RLDS Auditorium on Cottage Street in Independence. Um, and they have about 12 members worldwide. The they're Colorites. the Colorites. Yes. And they're the one true church. Yeah, yeah. I so bad want to get one of them on my podcast. They've always told me no. <laughs> They're a, a really sweet group of people. They yeah. really are nice. Yeah, friendly. One of the friendliest people I've ever met. So, yeah, that's that's great. Um, so, talk a little bit more about your book because um, it kind of sounds like a unity movement, healing the breach. Um, is that what you're trying to do? Is get all the I don't know if I should say, well, I probably should say restoration rather than Mormon, right? All the restoration groups back together, is that what you're trying to do? Well, I believe ultimately God says if you're not one, you're not mine. And I think that's an indictment on all of us to one degree or, or another. There's a story in the Book of Mormon. I believe it's more than a story. I believe it's a true prophecy. It's the parable in, uh, that Jacob gives in the Book of Zenos. It talks about Zenos' prophecy from the brass plates. And it's interesting, he talks about how the children of Israel were removed from places and put in different parts of the vineyard. Some in a good spot, some in a poor, some in a better, some in a choice spot. But they all bore fruit. And Nephi explaining the vision that he and his father had to his brothers, they didn't understand. And he said, I can liken all scripture unto us, referring to Isaiah. So we can liken all scripture unto us, Rick, in our day. And so I think the various fractions of the restoration are very much like the scattering of Israel. And they're all were blessed regardless of where they went, some in a good spot, some in a poor spot, but they all bore fruit. And I think that's true of the restoration. All of the groups of the restoration have been able to bear fruit to a greater or lesser degree. So I see the day will come we'll be all grafted back into the same body. Now I like to give a little, I have a lot of metaphors in my book and and I like to think of it this way. All of these organizations have kept the saints alive. 
they've stirred us and fed us and nourished us to whatever degree you think. Like a mother does when she carries a child, but at, after nine months and the baby is born, what happens to the placenta? It's cast aside. And I actually see all the organizations of the restoration like a placenta. Eventually they'll be cast aside and we'll have a living, breathing body of Christ. And I des that doesn't mean there won't be some organization, but we've become so institutionalized and there's so much bureaucracy in maintaining our, each of our organizations that we've lost sight of the real message of Christ, which is the restoration of the house of Israel, preparing, gathering us and preparing us for the return of Christ. So that's kind of in a nutshell what I think about all the organizations. I think they're all useful and you can say one's better than the other, whatever you want. But I believe God's finger has been on all of them to a greater or lesser degree to keep the saints alive until he moves to reunite us. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, you talked a little bit about in your book about um, genetic diversity. Um, can, can you tell us that story a little bit better? Well, sure. In nature, you know, uh, if you marry within a certain family, you know, you, all of a sudden you start having mutations develop. And so if you have a wider circle, whether it's with animals or plants or people, the chance of surviving um, is a lot better. You have a, a diverse field and if you marry within the same structure over and over again, that manifests itself after time. And so in the restoration, what we've done, we've tried to remain pure and we don't want any wrong influences coming into our church. So we don't want anything to do with the Mormons, let's say for RLDS or the Bickerites don't want anything to do with the other branches. They, they even say we we're not a part of any other restoration branch and that's their identity. And what happens is it's just like in, in nature, certain elements come along and, and we're not able to, to deal with the disease or the shortcomings in life and what we have is criticism against Mormonism in general. In the constellation of Mormonism, it doesn't matter whether you're a Bickertonite or a Hedrickite or a Josephite, the world sees us all as Mormons. In fact, if, if I tell people I believe in the Book of Mormon, they'll say, oh, you're a Mormon. And I like to respond and say, do you believe in the Bible? And they say, well, yeah. I say, are you a Bible? <laughs> And so they don't, they, they understand, but the world sees us really, Rick, more clearly than we see ourselves. We are in that same banner of Mormonism because we're not Catholic and we're not Protestant. Now, we may not be Utah Mormons or we may not be Prairie Saints Mormons, but we're all kind of in that same basket. At least that's how the world sees us. We would say, well, we're not Mormons or we're not this, but... But we do have a common identity. We go back to the same origin. We share many same, the same concepts, a restored priesthood, the divinity of the Book of Mormon, uh, the gathering of Israel. We believe in angelic visitations. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. You know, we really have a lot in common, but we spent all of our time defining ourselves by who we're not. Are you a Mormon? No, I'm, I, I believe in Book of Mormon, but I'm not a Utah Mormon. You know, and that's how we've defined ourselves, and that's kind of a negative approach. And I don't, I don't think you build success with a negative message. I think you've got to be positive. Yeah, very good. Um, I mean, because, you know, that does bring up another thing. President Nelson in the LDS Church has just said that he, we shouldn't call ourselves Mormons anymore. 
Um, and it sounds like you get that quite a bit. Um, would you consider yourself part of Mormonism or, or restoration, or how would you prefer to call yourself? We'd probably say we're part of the restoration. Um, if the world refers to me as a part of Mormonism, that's just an opportunity to, to discuss and talk about it. You know, President Nelson did say we'd like to be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or we could just be called the Church of Jesus Christ. Do you know how many churches of Jesus Christ there I are? I do know. <laughs> Within the Restoration, you yeah. know, in the Restoration Branch Movement, we refer to ourselves as the Church of Jesus Christ, this Restoration Branch or that Restoration yeah. Branch. There was a time when some of us thought we could reclaim the name, the Reorganized Church, and the Communion of Christ sued us, and so... They trademark the name, they don't use it, but it, they warehouse it, no one else can use it. So we call ourselves the Church of Jesus Christ, Restoration Branch, whichever one we happen to attend. Well, and I've noticed in Independence, um, you'll, you'll see little variations on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, like the Restored Branch of Jesus Christ, or, or things like that. Every time I would... I would see a church. I'm like, that's got to be a, a Mormon church. <laughs> I remember I would I would take pictures. You know, you mentioned um, what we call the Bickertonites. Their official name is the Church of Jesus Christ. I know they got a lot of after President Nelson's talk. They got a lot of traffic <laughs> okay. on their website because um, that's that's what they had. Um, but the Cutlerites also are the Church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> And uh, there's a lot of them, and especially in Independence, if you just drive around, it was amazing to me. Like, I know there's the Everlasting Jim Van Cannon's group, the Everlasting Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter Days. Um, the weirdest thing is my hotel is right by there. I, I stopped by their church. Um, and so it really is helpful to get some of these names, the Hedrickites, the Bickertonites, the Cutlerites, so that we can distinguish um, but I love, I love this, and I don't know, would you call it a unity movement? Are you trying to bring everybody back together? Well, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I have any power to do anything like that. I, I'm just trying to give people something to think about, that if you look far enough down a highway, a two-lane road, you only see one lane. And I think the Lord intends to heal the breach and the restoration. And so what I'm interested in doing is creating dialogue finding out you know, who these folks are out there that we've kept at arm's length and realize that you know when you like somebody and you really care about them, it's a little harder to be critical of them. And when you hear their testimony, and my book is full of testimonies and miracles yeah. from different branches of restoration, and if you had a miracle in your church, Rick, that you saw someone raised from the dead or an angel appeared or a prophecy was delivered and it came to pass shortly thereafter, you would say that's an evidence that, that we're the Lord's people, that, that we're where God planted, that we're the true church. But you go over here to a different branch of the Restoration and they have a parallel experience. And not only do I have experiences in the book, but they're parallel, whether it's an angelic visit, whether it's a healing, whether it's uh, using the, um, what do we call it, anointing of the handkerchief, whether it's the gift of speaking in tongues. It's remarkable how really similar we are but we don't know because we just don't dialogue. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I know this is because all of the groups are very exclusive. We're the ones. We're God's chosen people. Um, and, you know, 
the thought, as I read your book, the thought that came to my mind um, was there were so many miracles <laughs> in there. And, you know, Jesus says these are the signs that follow those that believe. Healing sick, speaking in tongues, stuff like that. And that book was just chock full of miracles. And so how, how can we be the only church that experiences miracles when you have Bickertonite miracles and Strangite miracles and all these other miracles. Um, do you have an explanation for that? Well, I do. I think these miracles exist among these people because they're his people. And I think that when you exercise faith and you've obeyed the gospel, you know, we, we disagree over the gospel. You know, we in the Mormon church, for instance, there's a lot of doctrines the doctrine of the priesthood, you know, and so forth, the temple doctrines and so forth. In the Book of Mormon, Jesus says there's one doctrine. This is my doctrine, faith, repentance, baptism, and the reception of the Holy Ghost. Well, all of the Restoration churches believe that. We believe that when we baptize people in the waters of regeneration, that their sins are remitted and they receive the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Jesus goes on to say, if you teach more or less than this, you're not of me. <laughs> in fact, in the earliest days of the Restoration, before the church had been restored, while they're in the process of translating the Book of Mormon, Jesus defines his church. Whosoever repenteth and cometh unto me, the same is my church. Whosoever teaches more or less than this is not of me, but is of the devil. That's a pretty simple explanation. There's another passage in Nephi, he says, and it's often misquoted. In the reorganized church, people will quote it this way. The day will come when there will be only two churches, the Church of the Lamb of God and the Church of the Devil. But the Book of Mormon doesn't say that. It says there are, saved two churches only, the Church of the Lamb of God and the Church of the Devil. So the church has got to be bigger than what we have envisioned, that it's just our little part of the restoration. In fact, there are people outside the Restoration. The, the Lord spoke to Sidney Rigdon when he was called into the work and, and recognized some of the work that he had done. But he said, there are none that doeth good except those who are ready to receive the fullness of my gospel. Well, there are people outside the Restoration that haven't embraced the gospel, but maybe they're ready to receive it. If, if a quarterback goes back to throw the football and there's five or six receivers, only one of them may catch the ball but they all have to be ready to receive it. And I think there are people out there ready to receive it. The problem is we're so mixed up among ourselves and defining ourselves by who we're not and separating ourselves from one another that we're having a hard time passing that ball down the field to those receivers that are ready to receive it. And so I think there's a lot of help on the way, Rick. I think there's some awesome Christians out there that would be enriched by the message of the restoration. It's not so much that we came to tear down what they have, that the gospel came to build up that which they had. So we have a very positive message. That's why section one says we're the only true and living church. You know, when I share the gospel, I, I don't stress that particular verse that way. That means when you tell someone, well, I belong to the only true and living church, they think, oh, well, my church is dead and false. <laughs> right, right. So. It's not a real winning message. And it doesn't mean that that couldn't be true. It just means that's not a good marketing strategy to tell the story. <laughs> you know, I think that we ought to be mindful of the fact that God is laboring with people outside the restoration. He's answering their prayers. He's 
guiding and directing them. They're having blessings. And there's a lot of virtue outside the restoration that would enrich us as well as the people. We have something to offer them, but we need to be and have a platform where we can share it with them. And the more united we are, the, the stronger and wider our testimony would be. In fact, I like to talk about how each of the groups of restoration have a, a unique personality. The Mormon Church is, uh, they're a powerful organization. Um, they accomplish a lot of things. They've translated the Book of Mormon into 100 plus languages. That's significant. That's, that's remarkable. You have the little church over here, the Church of Jesus Christ Bickertonite. They're very small in comparison, but they're, like Steve Pinecker says, they're a Pentecostal branch of the Restoration. Well, all of us believe in the Pentecostal type gifts, but they're a gifted church. And so each of these groups have something different to offer, and there's a synergy that will be formed when we come together as a people, and we, we marry our strengths, and it minimizes our weaknesses, and it enlivens our testimony. Yeah. Since you brought that up, I, I, was, I was impressed with the number of bigger tonight testimonies you had in your book. Um, has it been easy to work with certain groups more than others uh, in order to get those testimonies? Well, just in having an opportunity to, to mingle among different people, uh, you hear testimony or you might receive a book from them or a journal and you read it and you find these testimonies or you have personal experience with them. And uh, it wasn't hard to obtain them. It just took a period of time. But uh, we met a lot of wonderful Latter-day Saints in the Church of Jesus Christ and they have some wonderful testimonies. We've met some wonderful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who have wonderful testimonies. And we have many in the reorganized church. So it's just a matter of listening and making notations and collecting them and putting them in a book. Because <laughs> I noticed you had President Nelson in there. That was just a conference address he gave. Is it? It wasn't like you personally wrote him and said, hey, can you give us your testimony? No, but I have a funny testimony about that. Actually, that was when he was a surgeon. Okay. Before he was, I, I suppose, before he was in the quorum. I was trying to remember if that was President Kimball's, because um, he, he operated on President Kimball. He was President Kimball's surgeon, heart surgeon. Oh, well, uh, he did administer, or excuse me, he uh, performed surgery on a patriarch in your church, and that's what his testimony is about. Okay. So when I was getting ready to publish this book, um, Lulu Publishing, it's a self-publishing kind of organization, and they said, we can't use that testimony, it's too long. And I thought, well, guy, it's, it's not really any longer than some other ones in the book. In fact, there are others that are a couple pages longer. Um, but anyway, they wouldn't let me publish it, so I, I was at BYU, and I went down to the copyright office and tried to get some help, and really didn't get anywhere. And finally they said, well, maybe you have to get an audience with the first presidency, meet President Nelson. I said, well, how long will that take? They said, probably five or six months. And I said, oh, <laughs> I'm going to try something different. So I went home and I contacted a copyright attorney, explained to him my situation. A couple weeks went by. I didn't hear from him. I contacted him and he said, now tell me again what it is you're looking for. I said, well, there's this testimony I want to put in my book. And the publisher says, I can't use it because it's too long. And he says, well, who is this person? I said, well, he happens to be the president of a worldwide church, maybe 16, 17 million people. And he said, you mean he's like the pope? And I said, well, in a sense, because he's a leader of a worldwide church, he says, I get it. So he writes the uh, publisher and they 
send back a release so you can use his testimony. So it's in the book. <laughs> so who, he wrote the Lulu or he wrote to? He wrote to Lulu, who was my publisher. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they said it was okay. Okay. It was okay. <laughs> um, I know Robert Millet was on the back cover and he had attended a conference you uh, were you instrumental in bringing that Book of Mormon conference in Independence? Well, um, several years ago, probably about 2010 or 2011, myself and another elder came out here and we met some professors at BYU. We had a, a wonderful discussion and Bob Millett said to me, Robert Millett said to me, if there's anything we can ever do for you, just let us know. We're glad you're believers in the Book of Mormon. And I said, well, there is something you can do. We are holding a restoration, a Book of Mormon festival in Independence. And we're wondering if the BYU professors would like to be a part of it. So uh, they said, yeah. So a couple of professors came out and spoke and it was a real hit. They uh, came out, Keith Wilson and Richard Moore. They were uh, a couple of guys that came out. And then, so we created a committee. We worked in conjunction with BYU. We created a two night event. Uh, we'd be one night in an LDS facility and one night in a RLDS or, or reorganized building or a remnant church something. And we made sure we had Mormons on each night and non-Mormons on each night so everybody would come. <laughs> and Bob Millett came and spoke and the testimony in my book he shared in my home branch after the symposium was over, the festival, he came and spoke in our congregation. In fact, i got to tell you about that. We had seven professors up front at church one Sunday morning, and uh, I was in charge of the service. My brother Jim was up front with me and another man by the name of Joseph Smith. He's a great-grandson of Joseph Smith, Jr. He'd been raised in the Hedrickite, the Temple Lot Church. Oh, wow. So before the, we went up front, we all met in the pastor study, and I said, I want you folks from BYU to know that when you go back home, you can tell your saints that you found the land of Zarahemla. That was the name of our branch, the Zarahemla branch, and that you met Joseph Smith. <laughs> and anyway, uh, Bob Millett shared his testimony, and that's what's in this book. It's a, it's a remarkable testimony that he shared, and, and uh, all of the professors have been just real positive in sharing their testimony of Christ. And <clears throat> when we come to the symposium, we don't talk about the differences in our churches. We've just talked about the power of the book. But we got an added insight when they came to our congregation and shared their personal witness of Christ. Some very interesting stories of struggles and answered prayer and experiences they've had that's, you know, really equipped them to be really men of God. It's been wonderful. Well, great. It does seem like um, the LDS Church has more, been more open to these ecumenical councils and conferences um, and, and I think you're probably a big part of that is that true would you say would you would you take credit for that <laughs> I don't want to take credit for anything I just think a door opened we walked through it and they've been very agreeable to work with us in fact our trip out here on this visit one of the things we want to do is meet some of the new professors that are on this interfaith committee, mm -hmm. meet the new dean of the religion department, and continue to build this kind of rapport so we can go forward. The pandemic slowed everything down. Right. We haven't had a symposium in almost three years. Okay. So we'd like to regenerate that. And 
Well, and you're here for the one up in Logan at Utah State, is that right? Correct. Yeah, that's this coming weekend. Yeah. The Book of Mormon Study Association. Yeah. And so it sounds like it's been reciprocated. You have some in Independence, we have some here in Logan and stuff like that. Right. So I think that's great. One thing I will say, and this, this does point to the divisions a little bit, which I'm not trying to do, but, you know, it does seem like the LDS Church has, especially with the Community of Christ and the Restoration Branches, is, is pretty open to these kind of interfaith councils. Um, I, I remember speaking with uh, Benjamin Schaefer. He's, one, he's a part of one of these polygamous groups. It does seem like the polygamous groups especially still get excluded. Um, and I know there's a big issue theologically with that, but um, can, can you speak to that? Are, are you open to like what we would call fundamentalist Mormons joining these kinds of things as long as they're talking well, about you know, the Book of Mormon? That, that's an interesting question, and of course that's a, that's a significant issue with most of Mormonism, except Utah Mormonism has accepted it as part of their history. Uh, the reorganization not only doesn't believe in polygamy, they don't believe Joseph authored it, so it's on the horns of those dilemmas that we've had this opposition all these years. Uh, <clears throat> I'm open to having dialogue with anyone, but you know you don't want to cut your nose off despite your face. And that's a step that's pretty hard for most people to accept. Not someone who says we believed in polygamy in the past, but to say that we practice polygamy today. It's a little bit difficult. Um, but I'd be willing to talk to anybody, whether they're a polygamist or not. But that's a, that's a big step to take. And you realize that um, you could sc scuttle something that you're trying to do if you get so wide that, you know, People feel that that's just too far. That's too far a reach for us. It's a pretty far reach for people to open their church up and let a Mormon come and speak behind their pulpit. You know, <laughs> so that's just just kind of how pragmatically how it works, Rick. Okay, so so it is still pretty hard to to accept the polygamous groups in there, just because polygamy is such a controversial topic. Yeah, I think it's. I think for for most Christians and and for most Latter Day Saints, if we exclude the Utah Church for a moment, I think all of them would have a problem with the idea of a practicing polygamist of of having compatibility. What we've tried to do in our gatherings together, we've tried to come together on what we agree on, what our commonality is, and that's the Book of Mormon. And of course, the Book of Mormon is much stronger than the Bible is. It says David and Solomon had many wives and concubines, which thing was an abomination. Now, the Utah church has interpreted that, except I command you and so forth, but um, the rest of the restoration doesn't view that chapter that way. But anyway, the Book of Mormon does condemn polygamy, at least from our vantage point. Um, so it, that's a, a wide stretch to include a polygamist in our fellowship like that. They'd certainly be welcome to come, and I'd be willing to talk to anybody. Um, but I think on a larger platform to invite people to come, I think that's a big stretch. Okay. I mean, that's just my opinion. Well, and I, you know, it's funny because um, I, don't, I don't know how familiar you are with, with uh, polygamous groups. I know Lindsay Hanson Park, is, uh, she's, she has a podcast called Year of Polygamy. One of her... Um, she's, she's really been instrumental 
recently, I think within the last couple of years, Utah has decriminalized polygamy. And she thinks, and she was part of that legislative effort to do that. And she says part of the problem is when we exclude people, it allows people like Warren Jeffs to thrive. And he is, uh, because, because they've been excluded, they can't get any help from the LDS church, which, you know, obviously here in Utah is a big deal. Um, and it's allowed a lot of abuses to happen. You know, Warren's been marrying underage w- women and, and all sorts of things. And she says, it's because of this exclusion that that it allows a lot of criminals. And, I, and I, you know, Warren Jeffs is in, jail, in a Texas jail and should be for the rest of his life, as far as I'm concerned, because of the abuses that have that have been brought to light. And so she thinks it's better to 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 allow them to to be open and and to try to make and she's she's really tried to make a lot of friendships with a lot of fundamentalists um, to stop these abuses. And so that's I mean I understand the theological. I mean I have my own issues with polygamy anyway. Uh, you and I have talked a little bit about that. Um, and so. You know, I even have a problem with Abraham and David. You know, for heaven's sake, the Bible's full of polygamy, um, and so I can I can kind of see both sides. I, I can understand the the polygamist argument that it's a biblical thing, and um, but but by excluding them, doesn't it allow some of these abuses to to happen? Well, I, I don't know. I haven't really. I haven't really thought a lot about that in, in light of how you've just projected this, but look, anybody that's a believer in the Restoration, the Book of Mormon, I think that they're valuable. I think their testimony should be heard. Now, there's, there's, there's ways in which we can't go. If, if a group of people wanted to have dialogue with us and wanted to be a part of this and, and left that separate, you know, uh, we ran into a group of people that were called the Snufferites. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of a recent separation from the LDS church. And, and for us, that's not much of an issue. But for active Mormons today, that's a little, you know, it's a little raw because those are their people right away, you know. And so it's just a matter of where you are in proximity to the people that have separated from you or are different from you. I think as time goes by, the snufferites aren't going to be viewed quite the same way as they are today, for instance. And I say snufferites, I just mean that that's an individual that um, they think a lot of. I don't know just how they view him necessarily, but maybe they view Well, him. I interviewed Denver Snuffer okay. on my podcast, and he did seem like um, people were trying to root out his followers and kick him out of the LDS church. Um, and, and it's funny because he's like... You can, I say you can still be LDS. There's no problem. You know, I, I sometimes I refer to that as being a dual citizen. <laughs> I did meet his wife, and she said they still attend their local LDS wars. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you know, and I know. I mean, even with the I don't know if you followed the Chad Daybell Lori Vallow thing up in Idaho. Are you, are you familiar I'm with that? I'm not familiar with that. They're a, a recent breakaway group. Um, Chad and Lori, their previous spouses, died mysteriously, probably murdered by them. <laughs> they married, um, killed Lori's children, 
buried them on the property. They're kind of the prepper movement. Um, you know, last days are coming anytime now. And uh, up in Idaho, they had a, a pretty big following. So anytime you have these groups like Denver Snuffer, Chad Daybell, Lori Vallow, um, I think the, the LDS Church is going to be concerned about, especially if they're influential in bringing people away. Um, but I think you're right, as time goes on, I mean, some of those preppers you got to worry about because <laughs> they're always about last days and got to have my guns and we gotta, we're going to fight for the Lord and, and this kind of a thing. Um, I mean, even with the RLDS church, you're probably familiar with Jeff Lundgren. Sure. I mean, that, that's a, probably a really good analogy with Chad and, and Lori, yeah, exactly. these kind of apocalyptic sects. And so you've got, I think any church, the RLDS church, uh, for sure, was worried about Jeff Lundgren and, and those kinds of things. But hopefully, most people aren't into murdering <laughs> their neighbors. <laughs> you know, everybody has uh, a degree to which they they can go, and you go too far right. <clears throat> with some of these situations. So I think it's just a matter of um, trying to find common ground with fellow believers on things that we agree on that. That they're, they're moral, they're doctrinal, they're they're virtuous, and yet we have some administrative differences, and we want to try to ford that stream and do that, not talking about why we're so different, but what we have in common with the hopes that maybe we can address those issues as we go forward. Um, but you know, if the issues are so big, you know, then you you really can't address anything. So. Um, you work in your neighborhood, and then you, you work in your city, and then you work in your state, and then you, you work in the country. I think it's the same way in the restoration. We've got to work where we have some influence to accomplish what it is we hope to achieve. Well, I would like to ask you, I know Elder Redland uh, this weekend in General Conference kind of justified the, the story of, uh, of Nephi and Laban, where Nephi slew Laban. Um, and I know in Elder Redland's case, he's like, well, that was a special case. Nephi was a prophet um, and was justified. But, you know, there have been other people, Chad Daybell, Lord Ilo, uh, Jeff Lundgren, that have used that story in their own lives to justify killing people. Um, do you have an, a, an opinion on that story of Laban? Is it problematic? You know, Nephi said, like in all scriptures unto themselves, and it looks like Jeff and Laurie did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's a fair question. Of course, Nephi says he was commanded to slay Laban. Right. Been delivered into his hands. You know, you go back to the day of Caiaphas, who was the high priest, a literal descendant of Aaron and firstborn all the way up until the time of Christ. And he prophesied, and we wouldn't think he was a good guy, but uh, because he resisted the, the disciples and so forth. But um, he said, it's better that one man die than a whole nation perish in unbelief. And that was a true prophecy regarding Christ. And I think in the case of Lehi and his colony, um, the Lord preserved a remnant of Jacob through this process. And, and it, it is extreme, I suppose, but uh, it fell within the parameters of the scriptural idea that uh, if you were to commit manslaughter and you fled to a, a wilderness or another place within the Levitical law, that there was justification, and of course Nephi fled into the wilderness. And uh, they did retrieve the plates, and they were able to preserve their nation. And so I'm not sure that Jeffrey Lundgren preserved anything. I think that was an aberrant kind of expression of that. And 
used, um, uh, just kind of try to justify it after the fact. Um, and you look at Nephi's whole life and you see a person of virtue and you see a person that um, is faithful. Um, we don't find that kind of continuity in the people that you've, you've elicited to kind of draw that comparison. So you think you you're saying you think that the Nephi story was justified, but yeah. but we wouldn't justify that today. That's not a scripture that we should liken unto ourselves. Yeah, I think we can liken it unto ourselves. And like I said, I drew the bigger picture of what Caiaphas said about Christ. Um, Jesus came for one reason; he came to die. In the midst of that, he performed miracles, healed the sick, called men to the ministry, established the church. But none of that would have mattered had he not died. And so the prophecy of Caiaphas comes into full view here for us. That was, that was the purpose. And so the same, just like I think what Jesus told uh, Judas, what thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> you know, I think it was all God foresaw what would happen and allowed it to happen. And I think he allowed that to happen with, with Nephi. Interesting. Begs the question, too, if... If, if that becomes problematic for saints, then um, maybe the whole testimony of the book isn't valuable or, or isn't true. You know what I mean? Whether we understand everything or not, if we throw out a story because we think that mm, we can't justify that, then, then maybe the book isn't what it claims to be. So that's, that's the horns of that dilemma. You either believe, I met a man recently, he said, I can accept about 85% of the Book of Mormon. He said, I have a hard time getting my hands around the, the enormity of the revelation. I said, well, it doesn't work that way. You're never 85% pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. Either the book is what it claims to be or it's not. And so whether we understand everything in the book, Rick, either if, if we have a witness that the book is true and accept it as the, the Word of God, then it's not so much that the stories are true, it's that we need to continue to find reasons to seek for understanding how that actually manifests itself, how we live that, how we understand that, how we accept that. But I, I think you, we're take, when we take an exception and try to overlay it and make it the law or make it the rule with all of us, I think that's probably a mistake. Well, I mean, the, the Bible's full of stuff that I have real problems with. Well, let's talk David and polygamy and Solomon and polygamy. And, um, you know, it even justifies slavery, especially in the Old Testament. Um, so... Wouldn't you view, especially David and Solomon and even Israel with his four wives and their dysfunctional 12 children, <laughs> um, would, let's go there, would polygamy, because I know you're not, you're not a fan of polygamy, right? Correct. So would, I mean, was, was Jacob justified to have four wives? Well, God gave them to him. You know, it says in the, in the book of Isn't Acts, that the easiest thing, though? If, you, if I say, well, God told me to rob a bank, or God, God told me to kill my children, or God told me, you know, I'm Jeff Lundgren, to kill this family, isn't that kind of a... I mean, who's, who can argue with that, right? Right, and, and that's, a, that's a fair question, you know, just looking from the outside. But, you know, the Scripture says that David was a man after my own heart. But David also was cast into the prison house. 
And so there's a consequence. He, he repented in all cases except the case of Uriah, where he sent him to the front lines, he was killed so he could have Bathsheba. So there's a consequence for what David's actions were. Uh, Solomon was the wisest man in the world, but he ended up with 700 wives and concubines. <laughs> but I believe that the luster came off on these individuals. Now, we had a promise in the Old Testament, the Davidic covenant, that there would not fail a man to sit upon the throne until Shiloh comes, and in him shall the gathering be. So that's a covenant made with David and his seed that's not conditional. It wasn't based on righteousness. It was, it was a Davidic covenant that would go from father to son until Christ would come to reign. The Queen of England today was a literal descendant of the house of Judah. And she presided over Israel in the Isles of the Sea. And whatever you think of Queen Elizabeth or her ancestors it has nothing to do with whether the promise was true. The Bible speaks to the election of race and the election of grace. We think that the house of Israel has been blessed. You white Anglo-Saxon Protestants have, uh, Israel went north and west, populated the Isles of the Sea. When they came to England, the French gave them the name Angleterre. The Book of Romans says that they would lose their identity and in Isaac would they be called. So they were Isaac's sons or Saxons sons in, at the end of the earth, Angleterre. So they were Anglo-Saxons. So God has blessed that race of people, but that's a physical blessing. It has nothing to do with their salvation. We're all saved by grace, and we're not saved by our race. But there are certain people that have had privilege, and so they've really been called to be a servant race and not to dominate. And so we, you know, we see this played out in history. We, we look at things in an isolated view, but if you look at the whole span of history, the children of Israel uh, went west and north and populated the Isles of the Sea. And, and some of the greatest things that have happened in the world have come because of descendants of the House of Israel. I've been privileged to go to the African continent, and, and uh, the British did a lot of good in, in Africa. Now, they had a lot of colonialism that, that wasn't so good, but they brought industry, they brought education, they brought religion. And, you know, when Rhodesia changed its name and, and they kicked the British out Zimbabwe, it's, it's really struggling, you know. And, and so for all the, the bad that the British did with their imperialism, they did a lot of good. And I think the children of Israel have been a blessing around the world. I think the United States is a blessed country. I think we have a constitution and a, a form of government that has been a blessing all around the world, but has nothing to do with our spiritual salvation. That's a physical blessing. And so we have to kind of look at the big picture, the, the promise made to the house of Israel and thee and thy seed, and David and Solomon and Rehoboam, and all of that going down, a lot of problems, a lot of family problems. So let me make sure I'm understanding that. You're saying that the, because I've, I've heard this referred to as British Israelism or something. You're saying that the 12 tribes inhabited the British Islands? Isles? I, I'm saying that, that when they went into Assyrian captivity in about 721 B.C., they never returned. They didn't, they didn't go back to uh, the land of Ephraim. Now, the Jews were in captivity and went back. But Israel was dispersed among all nations. And many of them went through northwestern Europe and populated the Isles of the Sea. And uh, 
it says that the, there would come of them a, a nation and a company of nations. Well, when Great Britain became Great Britain, they used the Union Jack, which was Scotland and, and Ireland, and um, they became a company of nations. And the time came when the sun wouldn't set on the British Empire, it went around the globe. You know, and of course, it's, that kingdom has diminished today. But there was a time when they were the mightiest nation in the world. And many of our ancestors came from Great Britain and came to the Americas. So I think history has validated the fact that those prophecies were true, that God used a group of people to promulgate things that he thought were necessary, creating America, uh, enriching the soil for the sowing of the coming forth of the church in the latter days, creating a constitutional republic where the church could be birthed. I think that's a remarkable event in history. And uh, so maybe that answers your question. I don't wow, know. Wow, I didn't expect that. That's really interesting. So I guess that brings up another question. Um, I know in the LDS Church, and I believe the RLDS Church, and I'm curious about the Joint Conference of Restoration Branches, uh, we, LDS and RLDS have patriarchs that pronounce uh, lineage of members of the church. Do, do you guys have patriarchs in the joint conference? We do. Okay. And so do they pronounce lineage of Israel? You know, I'm sure some of them do. I, you know, I've not read any of the blessings they've given, but uh, that was a part of the reorganization. And these patriarchs, some are in our movement that were part of the reorganization, and some have been called since. Um, but I think that that uh, that's certainly within the purview of their calling to point out the lineage of those that, that are so blessed. Okay, so you, you still practice patriarchal blessings and, and so is, is it pretty typical for them to say Patrick McKay, you're of the house of Ephraim or Manasseh or whoever? Well, I can tell you in my blessing that was identified. Okay. So I haven't read other people's blessings. You know, okay, but, but would it be pretty typical, would you say? I think it's very probable that that's identified in most blessings. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit more about the structure of the, the JCRB, if I can just use that abbreviation? Okay. <laughs> Are you like the head apostle or president no. of the Quorum of the Twelve or no, whatever? Ne neither, neither. Okay. Our structure is, is uh, we were a group of branches that met and continued to worship and there's been kind of an unfolding um, revelation regarding as the church has grown and, and has ministry has been necessary. So the apostles uh, are the leading missionary quorum of the, of the church. And there are 70s under them. We have high priests and we have elders, priests, teachers, and deacons, just like the LDS church does. And we have a conference, and each year at our conference, we select someone to preside over it. We've had different individuals preside. They're not the president of the church. They're the president of the conference, just during the conference week. So we're not an, a full organization. We're not a, a reorganization of the church. But just like men continue to be called to the office of deacon, teacher, priest, and elder in our fractured restoration branch setting, in our corporate setting, We've been able to call men to what, what you would call general church responsibilities, higher offices, 70s, apostles, 
patriarchs, etc. And so that's all we're doing. We consider ourselves not a new church. We're just part of the church in continuity. We're not more of the church than those who are not part of the joint conference, but we consider ourselves a part of the church. Okay. So is every congregation kind of an independent unit then, pretty much? And they, they call their own pastors and leaders and that sort of a thing. Do you have like a stake president or what we would call a stake president? We do not. Uh, we believe in that kind of structure, but in our fractured state, we have independent branches and each branch um, selects their own presiding elder uh, or priest. If it's small, they don't have an elder, for instance, but um, it's by the voice of the people. Some of the branches have come together and we have one group of in the restoration called the Conference of Elders. And a group of elders meet and they don't really have any say in the branches except they, they meet and they hold conferences and they have a magazine and they, they publish uh, what they think are good intentions for the saints, things they'd like to see them do. Uh, we Out of the restoration branch movement came the Remnant Church where they actually fully organized, selected a prophet, a pastor, a presiding elder, excuse me, of the Fred Larson, President Larson, and uh, and then the Von Cannon group that you mentioned sprang out of that because they're, when when their president died, there was a, again another struggle, succession struggle for power, for leadership, and so so in the joint conference, we're we're a group of restoration branches that have chosen to come together, and we've organized to the degree that we feel we've been directed to, but we don't consider ourselves more the church than other parts of the Restoration Branch movement. Would the, each of these branches have slightly different names? Yes. Okay. But but kind of a loosely affiliated group then, basically. Right. And then you said they're in, did you say they were in 23 countries? Mm-hmm. And so um, do, do these groups vote on apostles? Or how do, how do apostles get named? Like, you know, obviously you're not going to live forever. <laughs> Unfortunately. Okay, well, we believe that, that uh, the, right now in the joint conference of branches, um, if there are additional calls to the office of apostle, it would originate in the quorum of apostles. Okay? And that would have to be offered to the saints, and then in a general conference, they would have to approve that and authorize an ordination. Very similar to what you do in the uh, LDS church in that regard. Um, it isn't, we can't just go and ordain somebody. There has to be a conference approval, common voice consent. Of people, common consent. Okay. Okay. Uh, do you, would, do you see it expanding to 12 or would that be, would limit Oh, that's certainly a possibility. It, it's, uh, it's based on revelation comes. If that direction comes, if, and, and I think a lot of revelation comes based on circumstance, situation. I think the locus of divine revelation is always history, what's, what's happening, what needs to happen, and so forth. How, have there always been eight, or how, how did the eight get chosen? Actually, we've, uh, there were two called by, there was a revelation, the conference accepted those calls, and then those two began the process of calling others. And two of our apostles have died that were called, and one has been chosen to replace those. Okay. And that was approximately what year? 
when the first two were called? Oh, 2016. 2016. Oh, the, oh, I didn't realize it was that new. Oh, okay. Because um, you said two, what happened in 2005? There was the uh, conference of branches came into existence. Oh, okay. Okay, the JCRB Joint Conference. And so then there was a revelation branches. in 2016 where first two and then... And those two were then tasked as they were led and directed to call others, and, and so there have been others called since that time. Uh, attempting to, you know, fill the quorum, at least it's filled to the degree that it is at this point. I don't know that there's any, um, there's any hurry, there isn't any uh, tendency to fill it just to fill it. There has to be revelation. In the Restoration Branch movement, there hasn't been anybody, we haven't decided to organize and ordain a prophet. We don't think we can call him out of thin air. I believe if, if that were to happen, God would have to be in the matter. Okay, but you you would expect some sort of a revelation, kind of like what happened in the Remnant Church. Sure, there would have to be a a, a divine manifestation for that to take place. Of course. Okay. Are you still kind of affiliated with the Remnant Church? Well, we're not affiliated, except that we know a lot of people in the Remnant Church, and they come out of the same basket we do, out of the reorganization. Uh, many of them were baptized. 30, 40 years ago, and we would accept those baptisms as authoritative. Some of those ordinations we accept as authoritative. We might not agree with their higher offices, but it wouldn't disqualify their Melchizedek priesthood, let's say. Okay, so anything up to high priest, you'd probably accept their priesthood was valid? Sure, if they were ordained, if they could trace their priesthood in an unbroken chain back to the angel, um, then we would accept their their ministrations to that degree. Now, regarding the the organization of their organization, that's a you know that's a question. Obviously. Yeah. So, if an LES person wanted to join with your group, would you accept their Melchizedek priesthood? Are you asking me personally? You're asking what the the view of the church is. The view of the church. Uh, probably not. Okay. I think that uh, again we go back to our discussion earlier that even though they could trace it back to the angel, even though they can trace it back, they followed Brigham Young, so they have to be wrong. You know? <laughs> so I think that that's a that's a, a stream that's difficult for the saints to get over, and I I anticipate the day will come when the branches of the restoration can deal with the elephant in the room, which is priesthood authority. I think it's a stumbling block for all of us. Because there are men who can trace their priesthood in an unbroken chain to the angel. They make the same claim we do. They can say, I've laid hands on the sick and they've recovered. I've heard a voice. Under my hands the dead have been raised. Um, an angel appeared at my ordination, whatever. Well, however they want to frame their experience, um, it may be as valid as mine. Okay. So would you accept an LDS baptism, or would they have to be rebaptized into your church? Well, presently we'd have to rebaptize them, just like I'd have to be rebaptized in the LDS church, because the issue of authority hasn't been resolved. dealt with, hasn't been resolved. But within the what um, so an RLDS per, or a Community of Christ person, would you ex you'd recognize their baptism and ordination? We would accept their baptism and ordination if there wasn't a broken chain in. In the formation of the restoration branches, one of the things that catapulted us into this situation was the ordination of women. 
And so we don't accept that. We believe women have divine callings. We believe they're virtuous. They're smart, maybe smarter than a lot of us. But we don't believe they hold priesthood. So if they were ordained by a woman, would that be a... That would be a stumbling block. That would yeah. be a stumbling block. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that, so you wouldn't recognize, can I call that the 84 revelation? I don't remember. Right. Okay. Are there any other, other issues between the community of Christ and, and your yeah. group? Oh, yeah. There's, there's a lot of issues. Can um, you share some of those? Sure. Um, you know, officially, there's things like open communion. In the Restoration Branch Movement, we're close communionists. In the Community of Christ, they will serve the sacrament to anybody who wants to partake of it. Uh, recently, in 2010, they would accept baptisms in other faiths. If, as long as they were baptized, they would accept that as membership, but they would have to be confirmed. As long as they weren't infants. But now, they, I believe they, they're at a point where they're accepting all baptisms. Right now, the Community of Christ doesn't have any salvic ordinances. They don't believe any of the ordinances are necessary for salvation. That doesn't mean they don't practice them, but they don't believe they're necessary. There's been a real de-emphasis of the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Um, there, the church's position is they accept the Book of Mormon as, as scripture, as part of their history, but they don't believe there was really a Nephi or a Mormon or a Moroni and so forth. So these are difficult things. The idea of Zion, that the church has moved to a position that Zion is a, has a center of nowhere and a circumference of everywhere. Um, they de-emphasize the gathering, the Book of Mormon, the ministry of Joseph Smith. They don't, the leadership hasn't viewed Joseph in as favorable a light, I should say, as the LDS Church I've has. been really surprised to hear some things from the community of Christ about Joseph Smith. Right. It's been really surprising. Okay, so open communion, you guys are closed communion, so you would only serve to members of your church? People that are authoritatively baptized. Okay. And again, I think the day will come, you know, when Jesus appeared to the Nephites, and Nephi was there. In fact, when, when Samuel preached on the wall and those that believed his testimony, they came to Nephi and were baptized. But when Jesus came, everybody was baptized. And maybe the day will come in the restoration when we're all rebaptized. I don't know. But maybe that's a part. Anyway, I think he'll heal the breach somehow. Yeah. We'll overcome this separation which divides us as, as our understanding of authority, who has it and who doesn't. So um, I know in the 1930s, I believe it was, there was a, an agreement between the... I'm going to call it the RLDS Church because that's what they were known as then. The RLDS Church and the Temple Lot Church, where they would recognize each other's baptisms, and I, I, I don't know if that's. I guess it doesn't. It's kind of a moot point now because Community of Christ accepts almost anybody's baptism. My understanding is they have to be at least eight. Um, they they don't accept infant baptisms, but. Uh, would you see, if there was ever a relationship worked out with the LDS Church where we said, okay, we'll accept your baptisms if you'll accept ours and vice versa, would you ever see that happening? Well, go, let's go back to the example you gave. About 1900, there was a committee from the reorganized church and the Church of Christ on the Temple lot. 
And they met and they discussed, they debated and so forth. And out of that came what was called a working harmony, where they identified the points that they agreed on and they shared baptisms and ordinations. And then in 1927, um, there was a revelation given in the Church of Christ Temple saying the reorganized church has been rejected. <laughs> oh. And about 3,000 members left the reorganized church and joined the Church of Christ on the Temple lot. And that working harmony was shattered. But there was, for a period of years, there was Frederick M. Smith went to the Temple lot and partook of the sacrament. and So there was a, a working harmony. And, uh, of course, we're a long way from that now in the, in the church. But... That kind of idea, I think, is a working harmony. I think that uh, you, we're never going to get there if we don't at least sit down and begin talking about it, identifying what we agree on, what we disagree on, asking for divine intervention, help, help us over this. How do we overcome this difference? Is it overcomable? And I think if we don't ask those questions, we're never going to get there. So can you see that ever happening with, say, the LDS Church, that you'd have a working harmony? Well, sure, I think anything's possible, and I would like to work towards that end. You know, there's just a lot of obstacles in the way, but there's been a, I think there's been a thawing in the last 10 years or so where there's, yeah, definitely. there's dialogue now between the churches that they haven't had. And in the Restoration Branch Movement, we're also fractured. And so we don't have one organization that can interface with another organization. And so the restoration is, is great when it comes to fracturing. We, we say we believe in the gathering, and what we do is we practice the scattering. <laughs> you know? So that's, that's been a bit of a stumbling block for the saints. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, let's jump to the Book of Mormon historicity. You know, there's been a lot of people, um, Simon Southerton, Thomas Murphy, um, people like that, even Ugo Perego, who have said that there's no evidence that uh, Native Americans have any Israelite DNA. And uh, so some people have rejected the Book of Mormon based on that. Um, of course, there's other people that have tried to say, where, where did the Book of Mormon take place? And there's, of course, Mesoamerica, Heartland, um, even, I don't know if you've heard of Melee. Have you heard of the Melee? Um, Baja, California, that kind of a thing. Um, and I know that's a big question. We probably should break that into pieces, but where would you like to, to go with that? <laughs> well, that's interesting. You know, the mitochondria DNA that they talk about goes through the mother's line. And if I was a Jew, I'm asking myself, if I had a son, would I name him Ishmael? I probably wouldn't. And, you know, they used to in the centuries ago. Well, you know, so, so they went, the Nephi's uh, and his brothers went back and they brought Ishmael and Ishmael's daughters and they married the, uh, Lehi's boys, okay? And so it says they were Ishmaelitish. I don't know really, really what that means. That's a phrase that's in the Book of Mormon. So when we come to America... When I was a youngster, I assumed, I watched the Yankees play the Cardinals in the 1964 World Series, and I saw... The Bob Gibson was in that one. And I saw the, the stadium full in St. Louis, and I said, wow, look at that. Those are all Latter-day Saints. They live in Missouri. 
<laughs> I assumed everybody in Missouri was a Latter-day Saint. And a lot of saints grew up believing that the Americas were populated by Nephi and his, the colony. That isn't true. There were, there were peoples here. We know the Jaredites were here. We believe there were others here. If you go to the Heartland model, they find evidence of Indian mounds and so forth and relics everywhere. We understand when Solomon built his temple that they came, the Phoenicians brought people here and, and they, they brought um, copper back for Solomon's temple. So there's been a lot of traffic here in the Americas. And, and there's, this is a small colony that comes to America and now we suggest, well, we don't find enough Indian heritage to suggest the Book of Mormon is real. I don't think that's a, an accurate or a fair depiction of a way to prove the authenticity of the book. And I, I'm not a, a geneticist. I, I couldn't give you all of the heplicodes and all of that except to say that I think that's problematic. And that's why I like the Mesoamerican model. It's a limited geographic uh, area. It isn't all of the Americas. And I think it, it predated the DNA assault on the Book of Mormon. And it really insulates us because we didn't claim that all of America were descendants of Lehi and his colony. Did you grow up believing what they would call the hemispheric model? Yeah. I, as a kid, I, I figured all the people in America were descendants of the Book of Mormon peoples. Well, what did I know? I was just a kid, and it seemed to work just like the... Uh, watching the Yankees play uh, the Cardinals. All those Cardinals were members of the RLDS church. <laughs> you know? Aren't they Royals fans? Royals well, didn't exist back then. Well, right? the A's did, but they weren't, they weren't in the World Series. Oh, that's right. They forgot about that. Kansas City A's. So, so you're more of a meso guy personally? I am. I know, because we were talking off camera before, and you said the Heartland's making a big uh, inroads in with, uh, with the JCRB. Is that right? I don't know if they're making it with the JCRB. I just think there's a lot of people in the center place, some are in the JCRB, some are not, who are intrigued by uh, Rod Meldron's work. He, he has done a lot of work. He's produced a lot of literature. I'm kind of of the opinion that it's hard to fit the narrow neck of land up there in uh, the Great Lakes. I also find it's difficult when there are no cold words in the Book of Mormon, other than when Nephi says the, the fruit was whiter than snow. They lived in Jerusalem, They kind of the same pattern as we have. They had snow there, but they had battles all year long in the Book of Mormon. There's no galoshes, no boots, no rain, no hail, no snow. And, of course, if Joseph Smith wrote the book, obviously that would have been in there because he grew up in upstate New York. But we don't find that in the record, and so I, I think it's problematic to take the Book of Mormon story and say it began here in North America, but I do think people from the Book of Mormon lands did migrate all the way up through uh, and even to the Isles of the Sea. You know, Hagoth, they went into ships and never returned. Um, I know the LDS people believe some of the Polynesian island people are descendants of the Book of Mormon. Perhaps they're right. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Is that a big issue in the JCRB? Are there people who question kind of the science of the Book of Mormon and where it took place? Or is that not really an issue? I don't think that's an issue. I think it's the people are curious about um, where it took place. Uh, the important thing is, is that it took place, that, that, that the historicity is true. That, that's the real issue. And of course, um, the Heartland model is kind of new. It's, it, it wasn't I mean, it's burst forth the last 10 or 15 years, I think, where it's really gotten steam. And 
some people are gravitating that because the people have done a lot of work, produce a lot of slick literature, and, and maybe they're right. I don't know. But it's, it's interesting that um, there's been this effort, and I think it gives people a reason to believe in the historicity of the Book of Mormon, whether it's Mesoamerica or, or the Heartland model. Okay. Interesting. Let's jump to the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, I know, uh, I guess one of the big issues, the, uh, and I'm always torn, do I say the RLDS Church, the Community of Christ? Um, they decommissioned or decanonized the uh, revelation on baptism for the dead. Where do you, where's your, what's your position on baptism for the dead? Well, in the days of Joseph Smith taught baptism for the dead. Um, my personal view is, is that if Joseph had had the inspired version manuscript when he wrote section, it's 110 in ours, I'm not sure what it is on the revelation on baptism for the dead in the LDS section. I'm not sure he would have created it that way. In the inspired version, or in the King James, it says, we without our dead cannot be made perfect out of Hebrews. In the inspired version, it says, we without our suffering cannot be made perfect. Now, baptism for the dead is mentioned in the New Testament, but Paul comes to a group of people who don't believe in the resurrection, and they're baptizing. And so he says, why do you baptize for the dead if the dead rise not at all? So I set it down as a mistake, personally. I, oh. I don't, and the reorganization hasn't viewed Joseph the same way the LDS, the, the mountain saints, have viewed him. Um, we believe that Joseph was a prophet, but we don't believe everything Joseph did was of divine appointment. We don't think he should have been the, the uh, lieutenant general of the Nauvoo Legion. He was told that in, in temple things he wouldn't have strength. He was the mayor of Nauvoo. He was the editor of the Times and Seasons. He was the lieutenant general. Uh, you know, he was in and out of, of hiding because of all the writs of habeas corpus he had to write, so he didn't get, you know, extradited back to Missouri, you know, with the Porter Rockwell accusation of trying to kill Lilburn Boggs. And, you know, so all this is going on at the time. And, and anyway, this idea of baptism for the dead comes about. And the reorganization took the opinion in, in Joseph III's day that it was a local ordinance. And if it was reinstituted, that there'd be further revelation on it. I think probably in the early 70s, the church placed it in the historical section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And that's where it sits. You know, the LDS Church is big on vicarious baptisms. Right. We have a thousand years in the millennium if people really need to be baptized. There's probably a lot of baptizing that could take place. You could, you could get your own baptism. <laughs> so, but that, again, that's... I guess it's open for debate, you know. But the RLDS Church... Uh, of course, that wasn't hard for the leadership of the RLDS Church to place that in the historical section because they'd like to place a lot of it in the historical section. So I don't know. You know, that's, that's an open discussion, I suppose. Some people in the Restoration Branch Movement believe in Section 107, but they've taken the posture of Joseph III that it's a local ordinance, and if it's ever practiced again, there'll have to be a, a revelation that, that re-identifies and explains it. And there are others that just don't believe in it. Okay. Would you throw out most, 
because I, I know the RLDS Church throws out most of the Nauvoo period revelations. Is that your position as well? Well, the, the reorganization more aptly represents the Kirtland period. You know, Joseph was likened unto Joseph of Egypt, and Joseph uh, tells of a time there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. That's why he has the dream, and they save the grain, and the children of Israel come down and are preserved and go into bondage for 430 years. But uh, there were a lot of revelations given from 1828 until 1837. And after that time, there's very few revelations that were received by the church. And so I think there is a difference. I would say the Utah church more clearly represents the Nauvoo period in the RLDS church. The, the current period. And so would it be safe to say there's no official position for baptism for the dead in the JCRB? Yeah, I don't think there's an official. There's an official. You, you think it's a mistake? Well, that's, that's a personal, personal view, opinion. not a... Not a, I don't represent, that's right. not a statement representing the JCRB or the Restoration Branches or anyone else. You're asking my opinion. Yeah. I'm going to say I, I think it's probably a mistake. Okay. Did Joseph make any other mistakes in Revelation that you are aware of that you'd share? Well, uh, I don't know. Um, the King Follett sermon is, is interesting. It, it wasn't. Who? <laughs> it, it wasn't a revelation. It was a sermon that was taken down by four scribes and cataloged after Joseph's death. Um, I do think the Book of Abraham is a mistake. Oh, okay. A so you would recognize that. A historical mistake. That came from Kirtland. Yeah, I did. But it was published <laughs> in the Times and Seasons in Nauvoo. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, the Egyptologists are pretty clear that that's a funerary script. Right. But, of course, the Mormon church historians don't have that view. They, they, they believe it's real, and I know that it's part of your, your scriptures. It's, it's part of the, your belief structure. So, you know, we have a difference of opinion on that, I suppose. Very good. Pearl of Great Price, what about the Book of Moses? The Book of Moses is really part of the inspired version, or what you might call the Joseph Smith translation. A lot of the testimony of Enoch in the, the early chapters of Genesis, so we accept that. Okay. Um, but they put in the, in the Pearl of Great Price, I think they have the Book of Abraham that's cataloged in there also. We would not accept that. Okay. So no Abraham, Moses, yes, though. Okay. We're good with <laughs> Moses. <laughs> We're good with Abraham too. We just we wouldn't think that was really a true account of him. That's all. We believe Abraham's the father of faithful. We yeah, like but, but it's the book of Abraham. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Would you ever have a temple? Well, we have a temple. We had one at Kirtland, and Section 57 of both our Doctrine and Covenants identifies independence as the the place designated by the very finger of God for the center place. And our section 83 and section 85, they speak of a temple. So we believe in a temple, yes. We just don't have one in the center place right now. The only temple that we feel was built by direct command of God was the Kirtland Temple. Okay. Would you support like a, a group temple, <laughs> a restoration temple? Well, you know, when the Hedrickites, uh, they had an individual who came out of the reorganization and came in that, that 
period where there was the, the problem with Fred M and supreme directional control, and I told you 3,000 saints came over, and they chose their first apostles. Auto-fetting, is that Yeah, auto-fetting. Uh, and he received several revelations. He claimed John the Baptist spirit him, and the Hedrickite church accepted the first 11. When they got to the 12th one, he said those who come over have to be rebaptized, and so they silenced him, and, and he left, and half of those 3,000 people went with auto-fetting, and, and so that's the church with the Elijah message. Right. But what's interesting about that, they actually dug a hole for the temple. It was actually years later that the city filled it in, right there across from the auditorium and the visitor center, Mormon visitor center. Uh, but the Mormons came to Utah, and they came to the RLDS church, and they, they sought funding from both and said, this temple belongs to all of us. And uh, there's a guy named Gene Adams. He's a, an LDS fellow. He's written about this. And it's pretty interesting yeah. how they rejected the other churches' restoration, but were willing to ask them to be involved monetarily and that they could use the temple. So that's kind of along the lines of what you're suggesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I love Kirtland. I love that it's so open to everybody. I would... I think it would be cool if we'd all kind of go chip in on the temple. Of course, the LDS would put chip in the most money, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, they would have the most to chip in, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> so it would be nice to have a, another Kirtland-style temple there in the, in the center place, as, as you guys say. So, All right, I'm trying to remember. What else should we be talking about as far as JCRB is concerned? or What else? Well, the JCRB, again, it's, it's not a church. It's, it's a group of saints that have coalesced and said, you know, we've been in this situation many, many years, and there needs to be a platform where the voice of the people is heard. In the reorganization, our conferences have been quite a bit different than they are in the other parts of the Restoration. <clears throat> we believe that voice and vote is pretty important, and we don't have a lot of rubber stamping. We uh, bring resolutions from the fore. Uh, we can debate. Frederick Madison Smith brought a revelation in, in 1925, and the church debated it for 10 days. He wrote a letter of resignation. It didn't submit it, but considered doing it. So that's how feverish it, it can get in the RLDS church. Uh, I mean, conference was a big thing, and, and the voice of the people was heard, and people debate on the floor. And, that's common consent, and when a decision is made, the minority support the decision of the whole, and you do have common consent. But the process, we believe, has to be worked out, and so the joint conference really gave the saints an opportunity everywhere who had an authoritative baptism, that's the only recommendation for the conference, and that they act charitable, <laughs> that they can come and participate. And, that's what the, and all the restoration branches are welcome to come. And they could change what it is we do by the voice of the people. They have that prerogative. There's another group, and I'm wondering if you're familiar with them, CRE, Conference of Restoration Elders. Are, are they affiliated with you at all, or is that another group? Well, again, that's a group of saints that are in restoration branches, and there's a group of elders that gather together and they hold conferences, but they don't allow the voice and vote of the general membership. The sisters aren't able to vote. The Aaronic priesthood aren't able to vote. 
And so, um, in fact, they just made a trip to Kirtland. They generally make a trip every year. The last couple of years they didn't because of the pandemic. And they had a resolution at their last conference that we need to have a members conference. And I think they sensed the need for that. And of course, we have a members conference and we would like to encourage them to join with us and participate with us and, and strengthen us and, and, you know, cast their lot onto this side of the, the labor, yeah. There's like an alphabet soup of groups, <laughs> seems like sometimes. You're pretty well connected with a lot of them though, aren't you? Yeah, met quite a few of them. And, the, and it's because you're trying to heal the breach, is that why? Correct. <laughs> I, I was impressed with the number of Bicker Tonight people you had in, in your book. Uh, do you work with them quite a bit or? Well, we've had an opportunity to just meet a lot of them. And uh, there's a sister in their church who has recently passed away. She received a song. And she's not musical, she's not poetic, but she received a song. She, she wrote the words down, had no idea what to do with the music. Becky Tarbuck, is that the Becky one? Becky Tarbuck's mother. Oh, her mother. And so the next day she received another song. And she thought, I couldn't tell anybody that. That's like saying I saw an angel today and tomorrow I see another angel. No one will believe me. Well, after she had nine songs, someone said, well, Arlene, you have a gift. But now she's got words, but doesn't, hasn't done anything with the music. It's just in her head. And after 53 songs, they pray, her little congregation in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, they pray about it. And an individual in uh, the Detroit area hears a voice, go to Arlene Buffington's. And so he meets her. I mean, he'd known her in the church, but didn't know any of this experience she'd had. And they sat down on the piano and she hummed a note and he had his paper there. He would hit a a key and she say, that's what I heard. He put a dot on the page, hit another key, that's not what I heard, hit another key, that's what I heard. And so they went through nine songs over a weekend and he went home and arranged them. And after all 53 songs were done, she remembered every note of every word. And she calls those the songs of Zion. And before her death, she received 240 songs. So we decided we would like to meet this sister. We'd heard her song in a Bicker Tonight church in California. So we wanted to know who she was, so we made an effort to meet her. We met her daughter online, and so we decided to go meet her. And uh, we stayed in her home, and we spent five days there, and it was, it was wonderful. They were terrific people. She shared a lot of testimonies, shared a lot about her music, and I said, could we have those songs in our branch? And she said, no. Oh, really? She says, I've not given those songs. To, even my church doesn't have the copyright. I said, well, that's okay. Can we have them? <laughs> she said, you're not listening. <laughs> I said, well, I am. We'd really like them. And, and she said, well, all I can do is pray about it. So my wife was with my brother Jim and I and, on this trip. And after five days, she went home and we traveled around Pennsylvania and Ohio and did some missionary work. And then we were going to come back and stay with her a night and then fly home because they live by the Pittsburgh airport. But when we got back, she shared an experience. She said, Patrick, a couple days ago, I sat, sat up in bed, 11 o'clock at night, put my feet on the floor, and a song fell down on me. So she wrote the words down, and she got up in the morning and told her husband and her daughter about the song. The name of the song was Lend the Weary Ones a Song. And after she shared that with them, she noticed a note that my wife had left that she hadn't seen. And so she opened it up, and 
Joy thanked her for her hospitality and her kindness of opening their home. And, and her concluding line was, this trip has been a boon to my weary soul. And so she gave us that song, Lend the Weary Ones a Song, and she gave us a copyright release that we could reproduce those songs in our home branch. Oh, wow. And sometime subsequent to that, I was teaching a class at my local church, local congregation, and I kind of was looking over my notes, and I was hungry, so I went and got a bowl of cereal, and I sat down at my desk, and I, I turned my computer on, and I thought I would listen to one of the songs of Zion because some of them were online. And so I, I put a song on, and in the first line of that song, I heard a, an audible voice. I'd never heard a voice before. And it said, the period of gestation is over for the songs of Zion. And I thought, well, where did that come from? That was really unusual language. And so I thought about it all day. And when I got home that night, I wrote Becky Tarbuck, her daughter. I didn't want to write Sister Arlene. I, <laughs> I said, I don't know what you think of this, Becky, but this was my experience. And she said that that evening she went to her parents' home. And there were some other saints there. They discussed my testimony, my experience, and Arlene said, I believe that experience. And she then released the songs of Zion so anyone is available, has availability to them today. Hmm. So she has a website and you can go there and you can listen to all 240 songs. You can download the music, you can play them for yourself. And they're, they're called the songs of Zion. They're beautiful. Hmm. Interesting. Well, great. Well, is there anything else you want to share with us? Well, I want to share that this is a, an awesome place out here. You're at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, your saints are lovely. They've been very welcoming, and uh, we've had a great time. We're looking forward to the event at BAMSA, the, at Logan State University, to cast our lot in with other Book of Mormon students, and hopefully what we share might enrich or strengthen them. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm happy to see you. I know Chris Thomas is going to be there. Uh, yeah, I really want to meet him. Oh, you haven't met him? Oh, no, he's I such a met good him. guy. Yeah. Now he's he's Pentecostal, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah he wrote a book, uh, a Pentecostal's view of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I really look forward to meeting him. He's he's one of the most Christ-like people I know. So you'll 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 love him, I'm sure. So. Well, great. Well, I'm I'm out of questions. So uh, if you guys want to. Uh, get really spiritually inspired and read some amazing miracles, I'm going to recommend Healing the Breach. You want to show it to us one more time? Sure. And You can get it on Amazon. That's where I got it. I actually read it between conference sessions yesterday. <laughs> so it's a, it's a pretty quick read, and, and it, was, it was really, really fun to read a lot of those miracles. And I know uh, Becky Tarbuck's in there and Arlene Buffington, I think, as well. Um, President Nelson's in there. President Nelson. Joseph Smith III is in there. Yeah. And there are many saints, and they're modern and, and recent in and, and the past. And I think it's great what you're trying to do. Um, we do definitely fight way too much, and, and we should emphasize our similarities much more than we do. And, uh, you know, and I, I think this is something that we should all think about, because it doesn't happen just in the Restoration. You'll hear miracles of... Catholics and Protestants and everything, and if God is is providing those, what, what does that say? You know. Well, you know, I, I know you're ready to close this interview, but let me share no, a, a, another going. thought. 
because we had the hiatus from our Book of Mormon symposiums because of the pandemic, we did some different things. And last year we held a Book of Mormon rally. And at that rally, we had Steve Pineker had seen that I had advertised that. And he said, I want to come speak at your rally. And I said, well, you're not in the Restoration. You don't believe in the Book of Mormon. He says, I love the Mormon people. And I, I love talking about the Book of Mormon. I'd like to come and speak. And so we said, sure, you can come. And we also had a Catholic priest come. And he shared how he uses the Book of Mormon during Mass. Really? We had a Baptist uh, minister come and he said the Book of Mormon is more Baptist than the Baptist hymnal. Well, Sidney Rigman was Baptist. and that, Was this Lynn, Lynn Ridenour? Lynn Ridenour, yes. yeah. Ridenour. And uh, we had uh, Becky Tarbuck came from the Church of Jesus Christ and shared how Angel Moroni appeared to her grandmother. Uh, Casey Griffith from BYU, he came and he talked about the power of the Book of Mormon and we had Restoration Brent. So we had a, a wide variety of people affirming the value, the authenticity, and the power of the book. And so that was, a, again, another opportunity to widen the circle to people who love Christ and appreciate the message of the Book of Mormon. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to enlarge and enrich the field. There's a lot of great people out there that need to become recipients of the blessings vouchsafed within this book and the Latter-day message. Yeah. Well, I think you're an amazing missionary. By the way, do you go by Elder or just Patrick? or do You, you can just call me titles? Patrick. <laughs> I don't need any titles. Just don't call me too late for dinner. <laughs> Are you related to David O'McKay? we got to ask that question. Does it help? I don't know. If it helps, I'm definitely related. If not, I've never heard of you. But let me tell you one little quick story. A week ago at the John Whitmer Society historical event in Independence, right. my brother Jim went down to the LDS Visitor Center and thought maybe he would see one of the professors that we knew that might come in there. And he met an individual whose name was Kyle McKay. And he's a 70 in your church, and he's just been installed as the new church historian. Oh, yes, I just met him too. And so the other day we were in Salt Lake City. We went to the church historian's office and said, we'd like to meet the historian of the church, Kyle McKay. They said, well, who are you? We said, well, we're his namesakes. We're, we're Patrick and Jim McKay. And she got right on the phone. We talked to, she talked to his secretary, and he said he was in meetings all day, but would get back with us and text us later, and we have a meeting with him on Wednesday. Oh, so went right, right, bearded the lion in his den, and we're going to talk to the historian of the church. I think that's a great opportunity. Oh, see, I've already emailed him and he hasn't gotten back with me. Maybe I need to make a phone call. Tell him your middle name is McKay. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I had the two church historians ago, Elder Stephen Snow on, and I told Kyle, I need to get you on, but how do I go through all this red tape? And he wasn't totally sure, but he said, send me an email, but I haven't heard back from him. So I'm impressed that you got through so quickly. So... Maybe maybe a phone. Just good phone fortune. Over. I don't know. Probably because I knew you. <laughs> well, he didn't know me. I don't know that that would have helped. <laughs> well, you know, I met you two weeks ago in Independence and had seen you on your your podcast, and it was terrific meeting you. You were so friendly and engaged, and we had a nice conversation. And, and really, this is a joy for me to have a chance to sit down and spend an hour with you. Yeah. Well, I want you to know that I enjoy meeting all of my, and I call you guys cousins, all of my restoration cousins. You know, there's so many, it's one of the big things I've been trying to do is 
meet so as many groups as I can. I gave a presentation back in May. There's a Community of Christ group that meets on Monday nights over Zoom. And uh, I gave a presentation about 20 of the different groups. And I think I've met with almost all of them. Um, and so uh, there's only 500 more to go, I think. But I think there's about 70 groups that exist today that are large enough to have a, a congregation that are viable today. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's, well, yeah, I think that probably is low. Steve Shields is the expert on that, so. Yeah, and he's just got an update on his book, doesn't he? He does, and I need to, because it just came out in print, because it was only Kindle for a while, okay. and uh, I haven't gotten my copies yet, but he's got 500 in there. Five, he calls them expressions. Are they all? Well, he includes defunct ones. Okay, that's. I'm talking about the ones that are viable today. I don't know. Maybe there are more than well, that. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It seems like... Especially, well, you don't you you don't pay attention to the fundamentals like I do, but they're they're popping up all over the place. <laughs> There's lots well, that of that is true. I had to include those, but they would they would be under that banner, of course. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so we're we're constantly splitting. We need to do more gathering. I, I love what you're doing. I think this is great, and I I hope we can uh, the LDS Church and and all of the restoration branches can can continue to work together. I think it's a good thing and. And um, maybe we can overcome some of our differences. I don't know. It's going to be hard, but. Well, you know, maybe we need to see a marriage counselor, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, since we're not polygamous and we believe Christ only has one wife, his bride, the church, we've got to fix this crisis in, in our family so that we can be wedded to our Savior, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, Patrick McKay, I really appreciate you being here on Gospel Tangents, and uh, would love to have you back on again sometime. Okay, thank you, Rick, and appreciate it very much. God bless. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Patrick McKay, an apostle for the Joint Conference of Restoration Branches. Patrick, thank you so much for sitting down with me and uh, for autographing your book, Healing the Breach. For those of you who like to know, learn about miracles, this is a great book. You'll, you'll love it, I'm sure. In our next conversation, we're going to move on to Book of Mormon geography with Brant Gardner. And if Book of Mormon took place in Mesoamerica, then that Mesoamerican culture that surrounded the Nephite people should inform us something about the way they did things, and we should be able to enrich our understanding. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.